Fearless. 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 Fearless presence. All right. Welcome to Fearless Presence. And I um, did not write a beautiful introduction for Scott as I should have <laughs> for this first episode. But Scott is, uh, I'm chatting today with Scott Roos, and we're going to do a bunch of regular conversations. Scott is the yogi I have been looking for for many years, oh, has validated. <laughs> some of the things that, uh, some of my frustrations with the way yoga uh, is practiced and has, uh, is just a goldmine of, of information. And we, um, we share a lot of similarities in some ways. I don't know Scott's astrology chart, but I suspect <laughs> there's some kind of, we have, we have some very similar preferences for some things. <laughs> so that, um, so definitely a brother from another, uh, part of the universe. So welcome, Scott. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So being an Ayurvedic doctor, having your EDD from a conventional American yeah. university system, uh, and also being a yogi, teaching Qigong, and practicing uh, Vedic astrology. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this sort of re resurgence we're seeing of ancient and indigenous practices, you know, medical practices and things that, you know, which I call, I feel like we're seeing this scientific justice that like modern, you know, particularly modern American medicine has been held as the gold standard for a number of years, but in the aggregate, not really that long. And that we're seeing all of these, um, you know, very old, practices like acupuncture and Ayurveda come and really become much more mainstream and that even other uh, Native American practices and things, I've, at least in my world, I'm starting to see a lot of them getting much more acknowledgement and even some being researched and getting that scientific, you know, modern scientific validation that they, you know, didn't have even 20 years ago. Yes, there, there's a lot there in your, it's a very long question. So I'll, I'll start to unpack that in pieces. Uh, the first piece I just want to clarify, I'm not actually an Ayurvedic doctor. I'm an Ayurvedic practitioner. To be an Ayurvedic doctor, you have to go to a medical school in India for five years and study Ayurvedic, Ayurveda formally that way. Um, the path I went was with Dr. Vasant Laud, and he did kind of like an immersion program um, when he was teaching in Albuquerque. He's since moved to Asheville, North Carolina. And, um, and so you sit with him and watch him work with patients and learn the Ayurvedic theory there. And, and I went to India with him as well and watched him see, you know, each time we went to India, we saw a thousand patients. So 
I have a deep knowledge of Ayurveda, but I'm not technically an Ayurvedic doctor. I'm just a practitioner. So, um, and, and even if I were a doctor, I wouldn't be recognized in the United States. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. The American Medical Association only recognizes MDs and doctors of osteopathy. Um, and, and they, they do, I think part of what they have done is they're securing their future for themselves by limiting the number of new participants, making the barrier to entry into becoming a medical doctor and doctor osteopathy very difficult. Uh, by limiting the number of medical schools and having very high tuition costs for those medical schools, you're not going to get many, as many doctors. And then we have a supply and demand thing um, because the supply is low and demand is high. Uh, doctors forever will make exorbitant incomes. Uh, and maybe I'm off on my... Uh, no, I think they're very ter- territorial. I mean, they are with physical therapists. Like, you know, I mean, I've been a PT long enough. Like when 30 years ago, when physical therapists were trying to get direct access to not see, to not need a doctor's referral always to see a patient, the narrative was, oh, that's dangerous. You can't let a physical therapist touch somebody unless a doctor has seen them first. And now almost every state has direct access of some right. Capacity. That's fantastic to hear. Yeah. And I think we're in this era where boundaries are blurring, you know, that you're the, the doctors are taking yoga and they're getting trained as even yoga teachers in some cases. And that we're, we're seeing this kind of blurring of, of boundaries in a way that didn't happen um, many years ago. Yes. And, and, and I think that's a good thing. Having doctors exposed to other modalities because I think the temptation as a medical doctor has been that, oh, I'm a medical doctor. I know it all. <laughs> you know, my, well, that's I have all- what doctor and, and shaman mean, correct? Like one who knows. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Uh, doctor comes from the Latin doceo, docere, docui, doctus, which means having been taught. Um, so the doctor is one who has been taught, uh, literally, from at least ed- etymologically speaking. And, um, and so they've been taught in a certain paradigm, but their certain paradigm is very, um, in, in a way it's, it's, it's very drug focused paradigm. It's a very drug heavy paradigm, uh, as far as having pharmaceuticals, very biochemical focused paradigm. Um, but within a certain, you know, one chemical is the active principle as opposed to a group of chemicals being uh, a syzygistic, energetic. Um, and that's one difference between Ayurveda and Western medicine is we Ayurveda believes that the whole plant or the whole leaf with all its constituents make up an energetic whole. And if you take parts out of it, then the antidote to those parts has just been removed. And, and so, and, and, and this might just be a story, uh, but it might also have some validity. Ayurvedic medicine is said not to have side effects because you're using the whole plant or the pieces from the whole plant, which energetically compensates for the other pieces, as opposed to just taking one active chemical out. Um, I, I was list, just listening to this exact thing around vitamin C. Oh, 
Interesting. And that like extracting the ascorbic acid, you know, mm. cause that's usually what, that's what we get in all the vitamin C supplements is not the same as getting the vitamin C complex that you would get by consuming a fruit or a vegetable that, for example, or right, right. Yeah. That had the whole vitamin C and that they're around vitamin C. There's starting to be some evidence about that. I was told that by a friend. And so I got a whole vitamin C complex that I've been taking for years. Uh, but you've just heard something that confirms that. So, uh, I'm happy to hear that, uh, because I have been taking whole vitamin C that it, it, if you look in the ingredients, there's not vitamin C listed. It's just like powdered cherries and powdered this and powdered that. Uh, but it gives you 150% of your vitamin C for the day. Uh, but Ayurveda is supposedly the same way and Western. So it's just different ways of thinking. Uh, and not to poo-poo Western medicine, because they've done a lot of amazing things. I mean, Western medicine has done miraculous things and has kept people alive who, you know, 50 years ago would have, would have been dead no matter what. And uh, so the paradigm works for what it's really good at, but it's also, uh, it, it has some holes in it. It's not really good at defining what does it mean to be healthy. You know, what, what does it mean to be healthy? You know, they, they, they're very clear about what the illnesses are, but what is health? Um, and Western medicine also, you know, is not very clear about, you know, what is diet? Uh, what's a good diet? What's a good diet for particular people? Western medicine is also not very good at what's the cause of that illness. Um, when I was taking Western pathology classes in New Zealand, I noticed that just about every pathology we studied had its cause being idiopathic, which is a fancy word of saying, we don't know what the cause is. We don't know. (laughs) Yes. And so uh, the nice thing about Ayurveda is it, 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 you know, know, when when Dr. Ladd was teaching us in India, he would, he would have a mantra to himself uh, every time he would see a patient, what is the cause? What is the cause of this? Because if you can figure out in, in, in Vedic philosophy, if you can figure out the cause and remove it, well, then the effect goes away. Well, I think that's, you know, that's even very true in modern medicine. We just, the um, the gap that I see, um, well, I have a couple things that I could say about this. One, we know medically... Like the C- on the CDC's website, it says something like stress causes 75 to 90% of all disease and dysfunction. But we don't talk in very much detail about what stress means or what it is. Like we have no idea what stress is. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm a stress researcher or I was a stress researcher once upon a time. Um, and when I got my doctorate in education, I studied stress amongst educational leaders. That was my dissertation topic. And I remember looking at, you know, the different definitions, everyone had a different definition of stress. Everyone had different, like, so everyone kind of knew what stress was because we've all experienced it, but kind of defining it and, um, and quantifying it seemed to be a challenge. It was each, each researcher had their own little take on it. Right. Right. Well, and I know, well, I'll just say like through my work, 
with the vagus nerve and then going into how our body mimics the zodiac, like I, as a, in branding myself as a stretch, stress management expert for a long time, I would say that stress lives very pres- predictably and prescriptively in our bodies. Oh, interesting. You know, that there's kind of this, that it's not that hard to figure out, but we don't, um, but you have to tap into the story and into the whole person. And that's something I so appreciate about, uh, I remember when I first stepped into doing, uh, to working with an Ayurvedic practitioner, that the intake was all of these questions about my personality and my preferences. Yes. You know, and so it was a much more, uh, you know, that there were these, or I mean, I would call them maybe archetypal patterns that they were searching for. Right, right. In Ayurveda, we call them doshas. Um, because we, we, the great sages of old noticed that there were basically three categories of homeostasis, three categories of how your body tends to function. And each of these three categories tends towards certain qualities. And these doshas are called vata, pitta, and kapha. And vata tends to have, you know, vata people tend to be skinnier, just naturally. They tend to be bonier, just naturally. They tend to be drier, just naturally. They tend, their mental state tends to go towards fear and anxiety more likely. Uh, but they also tend to be more creative and a little spacey and a little bit, you know, and they naturally have trouble with routines. Um, and, and so they noticed there are th- basically three archetypes of people, um, have, you know, they're Vata people, Pitta people and Kapha people. And we're not all of one. We're all a mixture of all three, but one dosha tends to predominate for most people. And knowing that about health, you know, what kind of person are you dealing with? Are you dealing with a pitta person? Are you dealing with a vata person? Are you dealing with a kapha person? That helps you as the practitioner in your counseling of the person because understand that vata people might need a little more support and kapha people, they need that first initial push and then they're good to go. And pitta people, you need to explain to them why is they're, they're going to analyze everything. Um, but it also helps in your outcomes. Uh, a pitta person who has pitta problems is, you know, that's a little bit more difficult to cure than, you know, a kapha person with vata problems because um, in trying to reduce pitta, you're with a pitta person who is out of balance in the pitta direction, you're, you're, going against the person's nature. Whereas a kapha person trying to reduce vata imbalance, you're going in accordance with that person's nature. So, Mm. uh, you know, as a practitioner, you understand the difficulty of the problem you're dealing with. Right, right. It's like the the level of like nervous system rewiring basically. And like, or like, or having to like re-regulate your nervous system is going to be a little bit higher when it's a not necess- not in the natural direction of your preferences. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think in the collective, because the Vedas are certainly lumped and, you know, there's a, uh, 
you know, you're dealing with subtle or an Ayurveda, you're dealing with subtle, subtle energy and, um, that these practices are requires are, are like a belief system, like a religion, Ver, yeah. you know, and I guess where I've really been differentiating uh, some of these larger systems in my own work is where are they really a belief system and where are they an energy management system? <laughs> because you don't have to believe in an energy management system. It's just, it's just the way the world works. <laughs> and and the, the thing I like to compare it to is the, the airplane, right? You know, you can not believe in airplanes all you want, but because the airplane uses physics, um, and to fly, it's still going to fly whether you believe in it or not. And, and so I like to say, well, you know, Ayurveda works even if you don't believe in it. Um, it works better, I think, if you do, <laughs> because your compliance is going to be better. Well, and that's true of any intervention. I mean, the research would say overwhelmingly the, your outcome with an intervention depends, is influenced heavily by the amount of authority that you give it. Awesome. Um, so, but how much is belief and how much is, is like science? Um, you know, I, the, the, and to answer that, I think I have to explain the science behind the Ayurveda, uh, because our, our listeners won't know that off the bat. And the idea is the basic principle behind Ayurveda, Ayurveda is that Ayurveda is an allopathic system, which means Ayurveda, alos is the Greek word for other. Um, uses the other quality to fix the quality that's out of balance. Uh, and that's as opposed to a homeopathic system, which uses the same quality that's out of balance to fix the quality that's out of balance. For example, so an allopathic system, Ayurveda, if you're cold, if cold quality is out of balance, if your homeostasis is out of balance in the cold direction, you use the opposite quality to balance you, which is hot. It's almost um, uh, common sense. I mean, it is common sense because Ayurveda, once you know it, it becomes uh, a very democratic system of medicine where everyone in a society can kind of know the principles of keeping you healthy and, and share that amongst each other. And, and then the society is keeping you healthy. You don't have necessarily one central authority dispensing, oh, you know, you only I can give you the medicine, right? Well, that's, all right, we uh, might, we're going to put a pin in that and come back to that later because yeah. The, the, yeah, the justice of like you own a body, you get to know how to use it is something that has yeah. really been taken away from it with Western medicine. Right. It, knowing Ayurveda, you know, is almost should become a knowledge and, and I feel bad sometimes charging for consultations. Uh, because I'm just sharing common knowledge half the time. It's like, oh, this is just common knowledge. You should not drink cold water with your meals. Um, and, and that one change for so many people is, is immense for getting them back into health. Um, and we can go into the why of that another time. But um, the basic science of Ayurveda is being able to qualify which qualities are out of balance in your body and then use those opposite qualities to bring the body back into its homeostasis point where it wants to be. 
So if your body is running dry, well, the opposite quality to dry is oil, is having things with oil. You know, so have more ghee in your diet, have more coconut oil in your diet, have more olive oil, like have more oils in your diet, do oil massage. If the body is dry, add oil. If the body is oily, well, don't, don't eat any more oil, you know, stop eating your pizza and your cheese. It's, it, again, it's almost common sense, but, um, it, you know, not to poo-poo too much on Western medicine, but, you know, they, they don't look at that. You know, you walk into no, the room. No, and not at all. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, and you're like, oh, I'm oily everywhere. I should, maybe I should do something about this. Um, it's these minor symptoms that for me are often most helpful in helping to assess a client who comes into the room, you know, Hey, is your skin dry? Uh, you know, what's the quality of your, um, defecation, you know, that, that can give real insight into how the physiology is functioning. And if I can get insight into how that physiology is functioning, I can generally help that person. Uh, and, and the best way to help them is to get them to understand what, they're doing that is not helping them um, because what we ingest the qualities of the food we ingest and the amount of the food we ingest um, and how we ingest our food all determines how our digestion functions and then how our digestion is functioning determines our health and is that science or belief I don't know that you know like your your question about in feng shui well, maybe a little bit of both. Um, but from my personal experience, it seems to work really well uh, for me and for the people who have come to see me uh, for consultations. Right. Well, in that, you know, when you, I always say, or my experience in spending a lot of time with patients that ended up with me because nobody else could figure them out and, um, and working in clinics that just, you know, as a very young therapist that uh, where all the really complicated patients that wouldn't get better came, that was just known to be that clinic, The I would say when you treat somebody's physical body, sometimes their story changes. But when you treat their story, their <laughs> physical body always changes. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and I think when you integrate some of those archetypal principles, you start to really treat someone's story or like you tap into them at a deeper level. And I can, I can totally, sp I lecture on the neuroscience of storytelling and the neuroscience of change and where, how they overlap and how to leverage all of that. So I think that that's like part of what's so, um, beautiful with Ayurveda and it so makes you feel seen. And in that whole, um, you know, modern medicine really sees the, uh, treats the micro at the expense of the macro, mm. I would say, you know, and emergency Just medicine. Focus on detail. Right. What's the little teeny tiny part. And I, you know, I went to PT, went to physical therapy school right at the advent of the push for evidence-based medicine where all the different professions had an evidence-based practice manual and everything. And, you know, but I was educated by like the founding mothers of physical therapy, really. And, you know, and, and they're, you know, and the people that they had 
trained. And it's been an interesting to observe where it's, you know, modern medicine wants to just, because you're human, say that because you're a human, these are the rules that apply to you mm. versus because you're this kind of human, you know, like, like they, like it, it's frustrating to them to nuance it. Yes. You know, and it slows, slows down the decision making and stuff, but it, then it, you know, and, and acute care medicine is great because they have this, like you break your leg, they set your leg, your heart stops, they restart your heart. And there's this very beautiful one to one thing that does not work as well in chronic care medicine. Mm. With yes. ongoing kind, kinds of things yeah. because so there's a medicine has, has problems treating people with chronic issues. Yeah, because then you get addicted to whatever pain medicine. Okay, well, here, have this pain medicine the rest of your life. You know, oh, you have a herniated disc in your back. I guess you have it for the rest of your life. You know, here, um, take some steroids, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it's really, yeah. Convincing the body, which from, my, from Ayurveda's point of view, you have to just remind the body how to heal that area. And you have to nudge the body in a direction of healing so that the body starts to fix itself. And um, I can tell you a story of one of my classmates from Ayurveda school. Um, and she, um, she went to study Ayurveda after she was treated by Dr. Laud because what had happened to her is she had a piece of her spine break. And a piece of that piece of her, that little piece of spine went into a nerve and that nerve basically caused her to lose all mobility in one leg. So she completely lost the ability to move a leg. And um, as you can imagine, that's very bad. And so she went to the Western doctors and they did the MRI and the x-rays and they're like, look, you have to get this operated on. You have about, three months window before this is just permanent and, and bad. And so she said, look, if I have three months, I'm going to try Ayurveda first. And in Ayurveda, the colon, uh, because of its proximity to the lower spine and the colon, because it's also the seat of Vata dosha, which is, you know, if your body is drying out, it dries out first in the colon. That's the theory. And uh, did a series of medicated enemas with tea, a certain kind of Ayurvedic tea with, and a certain, and some oils. She did these enemas, I'm told, at least three times a week. And what that did, it, it hydrated the colon, which hydrated the area around the spine and convinced the body that it was no longer stressed. It was able to start healing itself. And so at the end of her three-month window, she went back for x-rays and MRIs and things. And the doctors were just utterly confused. They're like, what did you do? Bone chips do not just disappear. Where did it go? Uh, and so she was able to avoid having that surgery. And she regained, you know, 90% of the use of her leg. It, you know, because of the injury, there, you know, she still has for the rest of her life, a little bit of leg issue to work on. Um, but, you know, she was able to do this amazing cure herself without the use of surgery. That's so fantastic. We talk so much or out in the, 
you know, again, this is my, my world or in the world of nervous system regulation and brain health and vagus nerve. There's a lot of talk about neuroplastic, neuroplasticity, but there's no one talking about somatic plasticity. Uh, the body, yes. <laughs> and, the, and that our bodies can change, you know, even though there's, um, you know, I could certainly speak to the, uh, you know, like in the herniated, like in the research on herniated discs, you can pull people off the street that have massively herniated discs and don't have any symptoms whatsoever. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And so like, what's the difference between somebody that has a herniated disc that's symptomatic and somebody that doesn't even know it's it's there. What there. Is and well, I would say it's shock absorption if I was going to just make it very concrete. Cause by the time somebody comes to see me with that situation, that and they're having pain, they're not moving well at their ankles, their knees, their hips, mm. you know, their pelvis, their rib cage, their neck, and their cranium. It's all locked. That is one giant shock absorber. Right. Right. Yeah. People. They're moving like a, they're basically moving like a brick, you know, or they're absor- absorbing shock about as well as a brick. And your body is a ma- is a, an amazing shock absorption system. Nerves are really, are designed, or they're structured like high-end shock absorbers, absorbers. And this is why I love talking to you, because I learned some <laughs> when I talk to you too. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And it's, um, yeah, but that... Uh, yeah, I love that story so much because it's so emblematic of what's like we all have this possibility. Like one of my former employers, he used to say, Well, there's no non healing gene. And like and part of me would go, hmm, there's probably like a series of genes that get flipped to like keep you from <laughs> healing. But we don't talk about how you can flip your genes back the other way. Like your DNA isn't a fixed. How do you restart the system? Thing. Right. How do how do you restart it? And so, uh, tell me how you came to Ayurveda and to all of this. How did I discover Ayurveda? So Ayurveda, well, first I discovered yoga. Um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And uh, I did, at the behest of a friend of mine, I did a yoga teacher training. Um, and it was a ten, one of those 10-day trainings. It's 10 days in a row. You're up at this resort in Bel Air. Uh, you know, the, this uh, the Sony executive had ten, like five houses on this property, and one was the yoga house. And so we went to the yoga house with the saltwater pool overlooking the hills and in the middle of L.A. and did 10 days of yoga. One of the other people in that training was an Ayurvedic practitioner who had – uh, study with Dr. Lod. And um, I went, you know, I got to know her and I'm like, what do you do again? What is that? I've never heard of that. And she said, yeah, come down and see me. And so after the training, I went down to see her and she just adjusted my diet. Um, actually considerably. I, I was still eating fast food at the time and said, okay, no more fast food. And um, gave me some herbs to take. Uh, I was about, oh my goodness, I was close to 200 pounds at the time and, uh, or maybe even over 200 pounds. And over the course of two months of the big shift is just changing my diet and taking these herbs. 
my body dropped 35 pounds or something. I would just pee it out. I was just peeing all the time. And I'm like, what is going on here? And what she told me was going on is that my body had dried out. And because the cells were all dry at a deep, deep level, the body itself was trying to compensate by holding on to as much water as possible. And so when I started hydrating the body, uh, the body's like, I didn't need to hold on to all this extra water. And I just kept dumping the extra water. And and this is different than just drinking more water, hydrating yourself because you weren't able to use the water that you were. Exactly. I wasn't metabolize the water I was consuming. Um, so, um, and, and in Ayurveda, we call that vata pushing kapha. Like that's, that's a way we would describe that, that vata is out of balance. And so the body tries to compensate by increasing kapha. And in doing so, you start to have symptoms of kapha uh, pathology, which is gaining weight is one of the things. And so I was just mesmerized that there was something out there that with such little effort, I was able to get such a beneficial result. Um, and so my eyes were open. I'm like, oh, this Ayurveda thing is kind of cool. And um, so then what happened was um, another friend of mine said, go see this Vedic astrologer. And so I went to go see this Vedic astrologer. And this is before the era of Google, where you could just Google people to know all about them. And the, the Vedic astrologer sat me down and, and really impressed me because at the time I was working as a, a private tutor and he looked at my horoscope and he says, looks like your backup career will always be teaching and you hate to work for other people. What do you do? I said, uh, I, I am a teacher who works for myself. <laughs> and, um, and what he told me, he says, Scott, here's your problem. You're a guru and you're too young to be a guru. So go off and learn stuff so that when you're old enough to be a guru, you can be a good guru. And so that inspired me at the time as I was kind of, bored living in LA and kind of done with LA at the time. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like fun. That's an adventure. And so I went off and for a weekend and, and did a weekend workshop with Dr. Laden Albuquerque. And I was super impressed with him because he wasn't just a physician because he is an Ayurvedic doctor. He actually went to Ayurvedic med school in India. He wasn't just an Ayurvedic physician, he was also uh, a yogi. You could tell he was a meditator and he did yoga practices. Um, and I was like, wow, this guy's really impressive. I, yes, I want to go study at his school and sit with him and get to know who this guy is because he's amazing. And, uh, and kind of miraculously, a buyer showed up for my tutoring business and bought it. Like, and then like that transition was almost too easy. And so I moved to Albuquerque and did... Um, did the year program uh, with Dr. Ladd at the time. And that's how I, I discovered Ayurveda and did Ayurveda. I was, I was still young. I had hair. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, one of my favorite stories about Ayurveda from the first, my first Ayurvedic practitioner I worked with is how the Vedas describe phenomena that we think we've only recently discovered in modern medicine, like Mm. leaky gut syndrome Mm. is apparently described in the Vedas, you know, that these things that, 
I can't comment on whether it's in the Vedas or not. I don't mm-hmm. know the Vedas themselves very well because the Vedas are in, in a very old form of Sanskrit and they're, they're, they're hymns to particular deities. Um, but in Ayurveda, which I do know a little bit better, um, leaky gut syndrome is called ama. It's, it's called undigested food stuff that comes into your system. And that's very well documented and, and talked about in pathology. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but keep going. Oh, no, no, no. But I just think it's such a, a beautiful uh, example of where often the ancient practice and the modern practice are can be saying the same thing or like where we start to, you know, the ends of the circle start to meet. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, it's nice when, as I put it, when modern science discovers something that we've known about for 2000 years is really nice. right. <laughs> right. And so with your vast array of skills, do you f- feel like there's a, like, I know that you've got your, Vedic astrology framework and the geotish or the, or the that is Vedic astrology uh, and the Ayurvedic framework and but is there do you feel like I know that you you put them all together too and do you have like a I'm just curious for some thoughts on kind of that bigger framework because you do look at people from so many different angles. Well, that's that's uh, a, a big meta question because. Um, I think one of the differences between the way the Western mind is trained to think and the way the Eastern mind is trained to think is that the Western mind is trained to think this is the way. And, and I don't know if that comes out of monotheism um, or, or where, I, you know, I'm not going to speculate too much as to the cause, but, you know, here's the one paradigm that you need to use, use it. And there are no other paradigms. Um, Whereas the Eastern mind is able to contain multiple paradigms that might not even engage with each other at the same time. Because understanding that one paradigm might work really well in one situation and another paradigm might be more appropriate in another situation. And so I think the, the kind of key to understanding Eastern ways of thinking is the way to have multiple paradigms in your head at the same time and then be able to switch to the one that's most appropriate at any given time. And so, you know, for one client, they might come in and, you know, Ayurveda paradigm might be what's really what they need. They need to start eating more asparagus um, or, and, and not eat, you know, refined sugar or, or whatever that is. You know, but for another client is, oh, look at that Saturn. <laughs> you know, that yes. Saturn is just tearing you apart. You need to do obeisance to Saturn. You need to do mantra to Saturn. You need to start volunteering on Saturdays and and helping poor people. Like that other paradigm might be more appropriate at that given moment. Um, and, and being able to recognize, and, and you don't like, you're not omniscient as a practitioner, you're practicing as a practitioner. And so you're like, you might try one thing and you're like, oh, geez, this isn't working for this particular client. Why not? Let me look again and see if one of these other paradigms might be what this client needs. 
And so I don't know that I have a big overarching meta um, paradigm, but I do have a whole bunch of paradigms and, and skill sets that are com- compartmentalized. And there's some overlap and bleed for sure. Uh, where one might be more appropriate at one time and another might be more appropriate at another time. I love the idea that I will tell you, I can totally speak to where modern medicine gets their this is the way <laughs> framework. Uh, from, and I learned it because I took a, uh, it was really a training for business coaches maybe about eight or nine years ago that was on the neuroscience of conversations. Oh, wow. And basically we all like being right. And when we think we're right, we get a dopamine release, Ah, you know, and doctors are really bred to be addicted to being right through their mm. training, you know, like, or they're, that's high reward. They're not, you know, being wrong is not something that's tolerated. Right. Typically. And so they are, you know, and it's very hard to like dismantle that addiction to being right, you know, or when you're and in, like, I know some MDs that have gone into functional medicine and they basically had to reconcile that, much of what they learned in medical school was wrong. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. You know, which is a big, you know, when you've invested a lot of time and money and energy into all of that, that's a very challenging thing for any human to like renounce like a huge part of their life. Right. And say, you know, and so it's, you know, but like one particular functional medicine doctor I know, he worked in a diabetic clinic. And he will fully admit now that like nobody ever got better. He just was an insulin dealer. Wow. And, you know, but it took it like he really, you know, like he's, you know, had this big awakening and realized that this wasn't the way to do it and ended up going in a different direction. And so, but like, that's a big deal, you know, and then to think about that kind of change at an institutional level. Mm. You know, like that's a big deal to, for the institution to give up its power. And certainly, I think we're in this era where, you know, like for those that are old enough to remember, like in the 80s, there was a bank on every corner. And then it was like, a, you know, and then there were like big box malls of big box stores and coffee shops on every corner. And now the the medical, the hospitals are taking over the big box stores that have gone out of business and there's an urgent care facility on every corner. Like we know we're sick and the hospitals are building up higher in very phallic form, you know, making their buildings taller. And so we know we're sick, you know, and there's a lot of, uh, and while these boundaries are blurring, they're also trying to establish themselves or anchor themselves in deeper as the, the power authority. Power authority. Right. And so they can keep collecting the monies. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and it is a business. A lot, uh, um, it, it's been at least 20 years ago, but the, the daily show did a segment where they interviewed a Congresswoman who was not reelected after this whole thing that I'm about to tell you. Uh, she brought a 
bill forward that uh, to give discount that it was mandatory to give discounts to people for healthy habits for for their health insurance companies or for doctors themselves. No, for like for the general public that like if you exercised and stuff, then you would get a discount on your insurance. On your insurance, right. right. And the opposition to it came from the American Medical Association, the American Heart Association, and the American Diabetes Association. Wow. Or American Heart, American Diabetes, and the American Cancer Society. Those are the ones that, that, that opposed the health. That opposed that because they were like, well, not all of our people can exercise. But honestly, if you cured diabetes, a whole in, like multiple industries of supplies and services well, and right. equipment would collapse. I read a book by a doctor, Robert Lustig, called Fat Chance. And his argument was that metabolic syndrome, which includes diabetes, you know, a huge percentage of metabolic syndrome is, is caused by excess sugar consumption, was, was the claim. And that, you know, simply put, the American diet that's high in sugar, uh, if you were to change it, you would you would de- you would save the American public, you know, billions and billions of dollars would be saved in medical costs. And um, he is re- receiving a lot of resistance from everyone too. Um, not the least of which is the sugar lobby. Um, <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, if you regulated the food production end of things like that, you know, like healthier people. And so the whole system is designed to, 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 you know, the whole food supply is designed for you to be unhealthy in the sense that uh, fat was removed from food. You know, it doesn't matter how many times I tell people that good fat is good for you. They, they still go out and buy the fat free milk or, or they still go out and buy the, you know, the no fat, whatever's. And, um, but things that don't have fat in them, they taste like cardboard. So you add sugars, they taste good. Uh, so then you have this whole society addicted to, and, and thinking it's okay to have, you know, oh, you know, this breakfast item has 15 grams of sugar. Well, do you realize that's a candy bar level of sugar? Like <laughs> your breakfast item, candy bar level of sugar, um, and and sodas are like you know why why don't we tax sodas? One soda is forty plus grams of sugar. Like you, your body can't metabolize that. Yeah. Well, and we disguise candy bars now as protein bars. Right. right. <laughs> Things you know. Like- this bar, I think you know. I, and I apologize to Cliff if you're listening, but I think your bar has twenty eight grams of sugar. Um, and, and, which is just obscene. Like that is just yeah. So the ultimate challenge then in, you know, you know, I think it's really this, like in the, in the moment, like the best we can do is educate ourselves. Right. Because, because we're not getting that outside support to have that. And, you know, I'm definitely in the whole spirit of scientific justice and, um, things like that. I don't particularly think the onus should always be on the individual. I think the environment could be set up in a way or restructured in a way to make all of us healthier. 
Yes. Absolutely. That it could be much more organic and, um, you know, that it's not an, cause an un, it can be very hard to be healthy in an unhealthy environment. Exactly. If, if being healthy were easy, more people would be healthy. Right, right. Well, and we're wired for what's familiar, not what's right for us. And so it's that, you know, and making healthy with, familiar. Yeah, we're familiar. Well, what are we familiar with? Well, we're TV addicts. And so we watch television and whatever commercials tell us. And, or, or, <laughs> yeah. In the modern world, it's your YouTube addicts and whatever your YouTube commercials, um, tell you, um, you know, being healthy in some ways is easy. You know, but you go buy some basmati rice, you go buy some beans, you cook them together. It's really, it's, it's cheaper than a McDonald's meal. Uh, but people have been exposed to McDonald's so much. They go to the McDonald's um, because that's where they think the cheap meal is. But if you can actually shop even at Whole Foods relatively cheaply, if you know how and what to buy, uh, because one thing of rice and one thing of beans and boom, you can feed a family of four for under $10. Well, and I would love to, in one of the, like, maybe we'll touch on this next time because, uh, like keto and paleo eating plans are so popular right now. And they would say, Oh, don't ever eat rice or beans or lentils. <laughs> or anything like that, especially if you want to lose weight, especially if you have what Ayurveda would call a kapha dominant mm. body that wants to change. And I would love to, we're, we'll put a pin in that for next time to dismantle, uh, dismantle that story because the, um, because there's so much, uh, you know, I mean, that's a very profit driven industry. Oh, I, I'm sure that's part of the thing. And, not to say, I mean, there are, there are places for keto diets for sure. Um, and there are times for it for sure. Um, but I don't know for complete lifestyle that it's the best. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Scott, for this. And I look forward to doing this more often and that we'll, um, we'll figure out how to, how to rule the world between the two of us <laughs> to change the, change the world. <laughs> change the world, yes. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Fearless Presence Podcast. Text Fearless to 411321 to take your first step into Fearless Presence. For international numbers and more information, including my free playbook, Six Steps to Fearless Presence, go to fearlesspresence.com. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and information to help you step into your fearless presence.